one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Alpha. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the non-DOM scandal and you ask us, how should Labour respond to it? We're recording remotely today and there's a bit of drilling in the background, so do bear with us. So we're recording on Monday morning, and this is the morning after Rishi Sunak referred himself to Lord Guite, the independent advisor on ministers' interests, to try and clear his name over this scandal that doesn't seem to be going away over his wife's non-dom status, and also the suggestion that he held a green card until fairly recently. But what's happened here, Alva, is, is actually what's been exposed is Rishi Sunak's perhaps naivety as a politician. What do you think? Yeah, I think so, because I think the way this story has been playing out, obviously it's recess at the moment, which means that when we're talking about how this has played out in Westminster, we're really talking about MPs on WhatsApp from their different constituencies or on holiday. You know, it's not really our people in corridors standing around talking about this because everyone has scattered for, for the Easter holidays. But mm. and I'm sure that actually does slightly the way the the political story has unfolded slightly or how Tory MPs have been reacting to it but it's not just I think the facts of the story itself it's really how Rishi Sunak has dealt with it and has, has been seen right from the start of this to be on the back foot. I was with a lot of conservatives as the story broke just by coincidence. It was on that Wednesday night everyone was seeing you know Rishi Sunak's wife has non-dom status Everyone thought that it was about tax havens from the off and everyone was groaning. And then quite quickly, the response from Rishi Sunak's team was that this was a sort of an unfair attack on Rishi Sunak's wife because she's Indian. And so obviously she's non-domiciled in the UK. And then the following day, that kind of unraveled with tax experts saying that the two aren't really connected. But that had been the line that Rishi Sunak's team went with originally. And the chat among conservatives was then that night really about whether they needed to get on the front foot and say that she would seek British citizenship. Or certainly that was a conversation with with the people I was with and they were passing on those concerns to Rishi Sunak and his team. But the line around her being Indian was too defensive and they needed to, to kill the story quickly with an announcement like that. But then that completely unraveled. And we had this sort of narrative, which was a bit like, I think, I don't know what you made of it, Anish, but this kind of uncomfortable narrative, Rishi Sunak talking about his wife being foreign and, and being attacked for being foreign, but he, he hopes that the British people will be welcoming of a foreign wife. And, and that, those aren't direct quotes, but that was really the tone of it, that they really made it about her nationality, which 
added a sort of unusual spin to it and sort of distracted from the main issues around the tax arrangements themselves. And after he came out fighting, you know, he gave those comments about his wife being foreign and so on, were in an, in, a, in an interview with The Sun. He gave that quite defensive interview and within 24 hours, his wife had taken a U-turn and announced that she would be paying that, that tax, but that she would still be non-domiciled. Then there were the revelations about the green card. There have been allegations about both of them using tax havens, which have been denied. And then Rishi Sunak this morning has asked for Lord Guite to look into whether um, his interests were declared properly, which is something that Labour has been calling for, but isn't really even the central thing. So I think overall, I think the chat from Conservative MPs who are watching this from their holiday homes or their constituencies is more that this has just revealed Rishi Sunak's inexperience as a politician beyond all else. Not just that he allowed some of these things to persist well into his ministerial career, but that then this is his, you know, this is his first real sort of scandal or tricky time as a politician. And he, he's responded quite badly. He's sort of, his response to it, this was a smear. Briefings from his allies that this was coming from the Prime Minister, launching an inquiry into who leaked and the details of his wife's tax arrangements. Mm. I think all in all, all it, it means his stock has fallen even further in the eyes of Conservative MPs who at one time really did think that he was their next great hope for leader. But now I think they just see it as a continued demonstration of his of just how, how green he is, how inexperienced, that ultimately he's so new in politics that he's unable to, to cope with a scandal like this or to, or to ride it out properly. Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with you on his naivety, because I suppose our introduction to Rishi Sunak was as someone who was accelerated into a top government role without having that much experience. And he impressed in that role because he had to step in and do those emergency COVID measures, which in turn made him a very popular politician for quite a long time. But in a way, even though the pandemic was probably the biggest crisis faced by any sort of modern government that we can remember, it was almost, it almost wasn't a challenge in the sense that he had to introduce the schemes that he introduced to try and keep Britain on ice through the main part of the crisis. And now he's having to make those difficult decisions about how you actually help Britain through, you know, inflation and rising bills and all of the sort of perfect storm of crises that are coming. And it's almost harder for him to make those decisions because it means that you're not automatically going to be popular, like his initial introduction to this sort of top level of politics. And so now you yeah. see that every single thing that he's facing, including, okay, this isn't a standard political scandal because not all of our politicians are, are this wealthy or have their taxes arranges, arranged in this way. But it, it is a sort of standard scandal in the sense that it involves a member of a politician's family and it's something that the public can get their teeth into because it's about someone's financial circumstances and everyone can, not everyone can relate to being as wealthy as him, but everyone can relate in terms of knowing what it means that someone's got billions of pounds and how different that makes them from the public. And so it's one of those stories that cuts through. It's a sort of, it's quite a vintage political scandal in a way. And so he's facing these more conventional challenges that politicians face when they're in high levels of office. And, and he's showing himself wanting, basically. I think you're completely right that he was so defensive, accusing it of being a smear, putting it about that they're investigating who leaked it, 
suggesting that it may have come from number 10, talking, like you said, about her Indian citizenship and her attachment to her country as if there was a xenophobic element of some of the criticism of her tax affairs, when, of course, she can stay an Indian citizen, but pay all of her taxes in the UK, as many Indian citizens here do. And also that element of suggesting that there's a sexism to some of the um, some of the criticism, saying his wife isn't his property and things. And there's been a lot of Tory MPs and ministers who have been out defending him using those lines. And I just feel sorry for them that they have to try and use that line because family always does come into it, doesn't it? Boris Johnson had to apologise for simply for calling Emily Thornberry Lady Nugie once in, in the Commons after her Mm. husband's knighthood. It always comes into it. Boris Johnson knows that himself with his own wife. So there is a bit of a naivety there. And he came out defensive and looking like he just really didn't understand the problem with what the scandal, what the actual meat of the scandal was. And the fact that she has then decided that she is going to pay all of her taxes here suggests, you know, a complete concession to all of his critics. I think it's been a really (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's really shown him up, I think. It's exposed how he doesn't quite understand. And that brings us on to the next question that a lot of people are asking. If he d- didn't quite understand how the scandal would play out, does that mean that he's out of touch in other ways? And is that linked to his wealth? There was that interesting piece in the Times by Claire Foges, the former mm. um, speechwriter for David Cameron, I think, who was basically saying Rishi Sunak is too wealthy to be prime minister. He is. It makes him too out of touch with the electorate's day-to-day life and daily concerns. Obviously, this is something I've looked into quite a lot in terms of how bothered the public is by the wealth of their representatives. And in general, you can pretty much say, and this sounds very crass, but the public doesn't actually care about how rich politicians are. In fact, there's a lot of evidence from the polling that we've done and from previous research that wealth is seen as this aspirational thing rather than something that ought to be punished. But is there a sense that we've seen him unable to pay a checkout and borrowing mm. someone else's car to fill with petrol. Is there a sense that he just <laughs> yeah, doesn't really get how he looks? Car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what yeah, do you and think? Then, and then they asked if he um, knew the price of a loaf of bread and he said he couldn't answer because they have lots of different breads in his life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I love, you know, he has a gluten-free option and CC. <laughs> he, he couldn't comment. Yeah, I think I'm totally right, but actually even that those kind of funny details I think it goes the proper slightly because, as you were saying, polling does seem to suggest that the public doesn't resent people being wealthy. But I think that people do find wealth very interesting. I think, like, the British class system is absolutely obsessed with it. When you look at sort of the way that the sidebar of shame in the Daily Mail works or Mail Online works or a fascination with the monarchy or anything, I think so much of like British society or British public life is like fascinated by the lives of rich people. So even though no one is resentful of the kind of wealth that Rishi Sunak and Akshata Mercy have, people take a huge amount of interest in it, which probably mm. creates a similar kind of problem because if listeners are anything like me, they will have, I mean, even long before this scandal broke, I was quite interested by, by Rishi Sunak as the richest member of parliament the UK has ever had and looking up all his different houses and finding out more about his father-in-law. I'm quite, I'm really interested in that. And I think that there's a readership for that kind of thing in the Sun newspaper, in different tabloids and so on, like just the property portfolio of, of the chancellor and his family. It just means, I think, that then you have that, people are interested in it, even if they don't mind it, combined with these 
sort of revelations around tax arrangements and so on, which are perfectly legal, but being a little bit during a cost of living crisis. And I think it just means that he ends up, it, it just reinforces this perception that Rishi Sunak misunderstood the public mood at the onset of the cost of living crisis didn't really understand the kind of help that people would require. And it's, it's not it's not that he does it deliberately, but that actually his life experience has ill-equipped him to make the kind of decisions that he needs to be making as Chancellor. I think that's absolutely right, that even though the British public might not resent that kind of wealth, they are really interested in it and they are particularly interested in it and you know likely to have a negative opinion of it if there's an element of hypocrisy there. So you saw how much rage there was among the public during the Barnard Castle gate and party gate as well, mm -hmm. because people were being told to do something and then the people who were telling them to do something were doing something different. And I think there's a risk of this. Okay, no actual laws were broken, but Rishi Sunak is in charge of tax policy in this country. And if his own wife has an arrangement, which means that she doesn't pay as much tax as she could to to the UK sort of exchequer, then there is an element of hypocrisy there. And that's what really ends up riling up the British public. It's the one rule for them and another for us, rather than just the basic fact that Rishi Sudak and Akshata Murthy are, are very wealthy and perhaps live lifestyles that people couldn't possibly imagine. But there's also a feeling, I think, within the government that the, the sort of media storm around this is missing one of the points, which is why we have this non-dom non status at all. Government lawyers would argue that a lot of people who are non-domiciled in the UK say, oh, you know, one day I'm going to go back to wherever X country that, mm. that they're actually domiciled in. But that, that it's a way of not paying your tax or avoiding paying your taxes for as long as possible in that time with no real intention to actually return. And so it, I think it's got a bad reputation among sort of some some officials who do think that it's time for that status to, to, to be reformed or even scrapped. Even if no rules were broken, there is a sort of bad vibe about non-domiciled status, especially for the Tory party who have struggled with scandals around it in the past. So I think there is a risk there in terms of their, their reputation because of the fact that they're so wealthy that they have arrangements like this. And there is a likelihood that more details could come out. It's just so interesting the way that this though comes full circle to some of the themes we were talking about a few weeks ago in relation to a totally different story in relation to sanctions on Russia and the wider role of the City of London and the UK as a place where the ultra-rich go to launder their wealth. And so we had Oliver Bullo on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about that. It's been a theme of, of the public conversation in mm. recent weeks. And this, in, in a way, is another manifestation of it, that non-dom status is perfectly legal. But why do we have it to incentivize really wealthy people to come to the UK, but without paying too much tax on their overseas income. It's just another way in which the UK has been set up to accommodate that over decades. And I, I just find it interesting the way that like, this is converging in different ways. It comes back to the same story. And actually people started scrutinising Rishi Sunak's wife's tax arrangement off the back of looking at which companies were still taking profits from Russia because the initial allegation of hypocrisy against Rishi Sunak was that he was asking British businesses to remove investments from Russia while his wife continued having a stake in her father's company, which still had a Moscow office 
and we're still taking profits from Russia. They have since mm. closed their Moscow operations. But it just means that we're having, I think, a, a, this moment where we're talking about the status of the super rich in London in a really different way. And a lot of stuff that's perfectly legal around whether that's Russian oligarchs or a billionaire heiress who's married to the Chancellor. That's true. I mean, it really is salient at the moment in the way that the machinations of international wealth in, in London might not have been at another time. You do get the impression that some of this stuff, I've heard that some of it had been reported in private eye before, but it's becoming... Mm. You know, it, it's become the scandal that it is now perhaps because of the sort of low ebb Rishi Sunak is at politically after his um, spring statement, which was seen as lacking in terms of its response to the people who need support most through the cost of living crisis. Yeah, and I think one one thing, this is slightly tangential, but one thing I would add quickly before we move on to part two is just speaking of Rishi Sunak's political inexperience, at a sort of an honourable mention to someone demonstrating his political experience to Sajid Javid to reveal that he personally had benefited from non-dime status for a very long time. He has come out on the front foot and admitted it. It was on the front page of the, of the Sunday Times, but quite low down. And because of the scandal, no one is talking about it. And, and in the details of the story, it's very clear that he paid back or he insists he has paid back and lost any sort of profits or benefits that he would have gained from the non-domiciled status before. But it means that it's possible if there's a reshuffle in the coming weeks or months that Rishi Sunak could be moved elsewhere. And even though the chat at the moment is around swapping Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, Sajid mm. Javid would also be a really likely contender. And he's just completely insulated himself from that criticism by getting on the front foot with it which I think is a sort of neat lesson for Rishi Sunak, maybe, in terms of where you play these scandals, that if you nip it in the bud and get ahead of the story, people can't call on Sajid Javid to do anything more than he's already done. He's paid it all back and declared it and apologised. Mm. You know, Labour can't be calling for an inquiry. There's nothing more to be done on that story. So he could become Chancellor again and there's no scandal there. I just think that's, I think that's really interesting that a little subplot in the, during the, Rishi Sunak tax saga. That's really interesting, yeah. And and it does show, actually, doesn't it, that it's all about what kind of politician you are. When politicians kept being asked what the price of a pint of milk is and things during the recession, it was Boris Johnson who came through that as mayor of London the best way. He just said, no, but I can tell you the price of champagne. <laughs> and, you know, it, it sounds terrible to us, but as journalists, because we know exactly what he's doing there, it, it shows that the type of politician that you are or the political choices that you make can help ride you through these kind of accusations of being out of touch. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on ACAST 
or wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So our question for today's episode is how Labour should be responding to the story about Rishi Sunak's wife having non-dom status. Alva, you were kind of ahead of all of this, weren't you? Because you were speaking to Labour insiders a few weeks ago about how they would counter Prime Minister Rishi Sunak or Rishi Sunak leading the Tories into the next election. And they were basically telling you that they didn't really rate him as a politician. So they've been vindicated here. How are they approaching it now that he has found himself in a bit of trouble? Oh, I'm chuffed that you have have mentioned that piece again, Anoush, because lots of people have actually been sending me screenshots from that piece over the past (laughs) week because some bits are remarkably prescient. A Labour person sent me a screenshot of one of the paragraphs um, in which I wrote, Labour figures also whisper that wealth is often associated with questionable tax practices. <laughs> While there is no suggestion that Sunak or his wife are involved in tax avoidance, the party hopes that with the mentors' wealth tidied in so many ventures, the issue will eventually become a political headache. Wow. And, yeah, <laughs> I think, and I remember writing that thinking, you have to be really careful legally, yeah. not to accidentally imply that you're aware of some kind of dodgy dealings that don't exist. But just sort of probability-wise, I think, speaking with Labour figures at this point when Boris Johnson's stock was low and it looked like Rishi Sunak might challenge him for the leadership or even if he didn't immediately could become the next prime minister down the line. They were just saying probability-wise when people have that amount of money, often there are complex tax arrangements in play Mm. or things that could end up becoming a bit embarrassing for Rishi Sunak. And and they've been totally vindicated um, to the extent that it might make you think Labour had some hand in this re-emerging in the first place. And, and I suppose if that's part of it. I think the question of how Labour should be responding is, I think it isn't actually entirely clear what role Labour has had in this story emerging in the first place. Because Lucy Sinek has called it a calculated smear and... Mm. I suppose it's not a smear in that the things that have been reported are entirely true and accurate, but it is. it has been calculated to damage him, definitely. It's definitely not a coincidence that his wife's non-dom status came out on the day that a tax rise came in yeah. to the country. That was done with the intention of inflicting maximum damage on Rishi Sunak. His allies were suggesting that it came from Boris Johnson or those around him. And actually, even though I haven't really seen this reported, there was a lot of speculation on the night that it broke that it was Liz Truss or people around her. Now the consensus seems to be that it was maybe a civil servant or official pass it on to Labour who then in turn passed it on to the press. 
it, it could also be the case that no one was really leaking it because Private Eye broke it a year ago. It might be that just because it became more salient with him putting taxes up and not doing enough for the poorest that someone revisited it and decided to push it a little more in front of the noses of people who may have not seen it a year ago. It's confusing, isn't it? Because there, there's a lot of different chatter around it because certainly the Westminster rumour mill has it that only a few people knew but the Rishi Sunak declared all of this really early on when he started at the Treasury. And so this idea that officials were sitting on this for years and then someone leaked it. And I think I, I heard somewhere or read somewhere that only about six people knew of the arrangements, but then you're saying that it was in private eye. So I suppose that's all by way of saying that we don't really know whether Labour has had a role in planting this story in the first place or using it to inflict maximum da damage on Rishi Sunak. And certainly, I think they would rather create the impression that had nothing to do with that. But it means like actually Labour's involvement in this story could be quite pivotal. But it mm. means that I think they have to have a left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. And um, even if they had some involvement in this story coming out in the first place, publicly, I think that what they're trying to do is look like they're shifting it off his personal arrangements or anything that looks like the politics of envy or anything like that mm -hmm. back onto the policy questions back onto the choices he's made around the cost of living and quite technical questions around whether he declared things properly and I think that they in a way even if they've been involved in planting the story are not trying to look like they're not that fussed about people's private tax arrangements or family affairs they just want to know that Rishi Sunak was following the ministerial code and that scrutiny of his policies is taking place. If that makes sense, it's this sort of funny juxtaposition, even though I think that they're, they're privately pleased to see this story getting a lot of narrow time and think that it reinforces their argument that Rishi Sunak can't make the right decisions around support during cost of living crisis because he's so out of touch. Yeah, I, I think I've noticed that. I've been waiting to hear that usual tirade that you expect from the Labour Party about politicians like this, that they are out of touch because of their wealth. Uh, a lot of that was used during the tax cut for, for millionaires under George Osborne when he was Chancellor. And they're not doing that. And I think that shows such a change in tone from when they were, when they were opposing the Conservative or coalition government during the recession. They aren't falling for that trap because they know that it's not what the, the public necessarily always think. But they are pinning some of this story onto hypocrisy. So I noticed Wes Streeting was pointing out the hypocrisy of one rule for them and another for the rest of us, contrasting this situation with the national insurance tax rise. And that's something that could potentially chime with what some people in the country are thinking. So I, I think they've been really careful to strike the right tone. And like you say, a lot of it is about the known and principles of public life and the ministerial mm -hmm. code. And we expect our ministers to have a certain standard of behaviour and all of the stuff that they've used over the dodgy COVID contracts and other kind of stories about sort of behaviour in public life and integrity and following the rules. And they're sticking to that line. It is a very Keir Starmer line, isn't it? It's a very sort of legal approach to it rather than trying to evoke some kind of emotional approach to it, saying that sort of Rishi Sunak doesn't understand ordinary people. So I've noticed that change of tone too. Whether it works, I don't know, but it certainly does chime with what we know about how the public feels about stories like this. 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague, Alva Ray. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to leave us a nice review. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.